Hello, my name is Ellie Bain. I am the Vice President Publications of the AHLA Public Health Systems Affinity Group. We are recording this podcast as part of a series on legal issues regarding the opioid crisis. This podcast focuses on legal issues facing hospitals as they deal with the opioid crisis. I have Melissa Jampol and Olivia Serafin with me. Melissa is a member of the New York Office of Epstein-Becker-Green in the Healthcare and Life Sciences and Litigation Practices. Ms. Jampol represents healthcare organizations, including healthcare systems, physician group practices, pharmacies, and other healthcare providers, and their officers and directors in a variety of enforcement matters at both the state and federal level. Olivia is an associate in the Healthcare and Life Sciences practice in the Washington, D.C. office of Epstein-Becker-Green, focusing on the healthcare industry. Olivia and Melissa are co-authors of the article on cutting-edge hospital legal and regulatory issues related to the opioid crisis, which you can find in the May issue of the Connections magazine. Thank you both for joining me today. We are going to begin by talking a little bit about the article uh, that Melissa and Olivia wrote. The article identified a unique program in New York as part of a delivery system reform incentive payment program. Um, That program sounded really interesting. Can you guys elaborate a little bit on that program? Of course. And um, this is Olivia, and uh, I'll be taking this question. Uh, So the New York uh, Delivery System Reform Incentive Payment Program is a really great example of state innovation to not only address the opioid crisis, but also just to restructure the healthcare system overall. Um, The Delivery System Reform Incentive Payment Program is part of the Medicaid Waiver Amendment, which is an agreement by which New York State is reinvesting $8 billion in federal savings back into its Medicaid program. And it's doing this through a variety of different groups, one of which we discussed in our article, which was the Staten Island Performing Provider System. And it's one of 25 different groups working as part of this New York uh, delivery system program. And the Staten Island PPS is actually a network of over 70 partners, which includes skilled nursing facilities, behavioral health providers, home health care agencies, um, and a wide range of different community-based clinical facilities. Um, and within that network, they're currently implementing over 11 different programs, and these are focusing on integrating primary care and behavioral health, which is increasing screening and uh, incorporating more medical assessments into patients' practices to ensure that they're coordinating care of services uh, for different patients. Um, they're also implementing different withdrawal management programs um, that include developing a detox service for substance use disorders within community-based addiction treatment programs um, to provide medical supervision and allow um, for the transfer of stabilized patients into different substance use disorder services. Um, this is just one example of a way that the state is giving greater payment flexibility to groups to try to innovatively address the opioid crisis, and um, it's definitely something that we should look out for. That sounds really interesting. Do you think that other states will implement similar measures, or have you heard of any other similar measures being implemented across any other jurisdictions? 
Hi, this is Melissa. I'm going to address that question. Um, what we're seeing is that there's innovation at all levels, uh, both federal, state, and local levels, and even at the sub-micro level, to address the opioid crisis right now. And um, the New York State program is one example of a state innovation, but there's certainly a lot of other innovation that is going on through you know, different different kind of innovation. So whereas we, we don't see anything directly tied as saying we're modeling it after Staten Island, we, we have seen a lot of creativity out there as people try to find out what's the best way to respond to this epidemic that's really hit this country very hard. Because there is so much innovation and the opioid crisis is really growing day by day in new and different ways. Um, you know, there's so many different legal issues that come up uh, from a hospital perspective. Is there anything that you can think of now in terms of policies, procedures, or trainings that you think uh, hospital clients should either implement or should consider and work on implementing now even before the state might require it? Well, we definitely would recommend for hospital systems to be proactive in their response. And by nature of the fact that they're really bearing the brunt of the opioid crisis in terms of responding to people who are overdosing and having issues with, with opioids or side effects or things like that, that they're being particularly hard. I mean, you have to think about where we came from. Since 1999, the number of prescription opioid overdoses in the United States have quadrupled. Um, which is just an incredible number, and that's particularly hitting hospital systems hard. And you also have to think about the fact that statistics indicate that 80% of heroin addiction starts with prescription drug addiction. So we have this sort of duality between drugs that you can obtain through medical providers and the prescription drug addiction, and then the corollary search for, um, for opioids, which often lead to users trying heroin and then entering into that sort of world of, of illegal drug um, and, and consuming illegal drugs. So in terms of answering your question about it, if there's any policies or procedures or trainings that we, rep that we recommend that hospitals think about, um, we of course recommend that hospitals establish a strong regulatory compliance program in place to monitor the changing state and federal laws and the changing expectation and obligation of hospitals, which of course is easier said than done. We all know how difficult it is to keep up with that on top of all of the other regulatory requirements that, that hospitals have. But given that the landscape is really changing, we, we do recommend that. We also recommend that hospitals proactively improve tools for pain care providers, including training and resources for assessing, diagnosing, preventing, treating and managing acute or chronic pain and providing training to providers on detecting the early warning signs of opioid use disorders. Now, some of that is being mandated from above by state and local authorities and, and the, even federal authorities are contemplating this. But to be proactive in that space certainly can make hospital providers stay a step ahead. Um, Tied into that is the idea of a hospital and provider systems developing new pain 
management protocols to try to standardize post-operative pain regimens in order to limit the amount of narcotics given to patients. And we see a real movement across the country to um, superimpose regulatory requirements on providers in terms and restrictions on, on providers in terms of how many um, opioids they're allowed to prescribe at one time, um, how many refills, if there are refills. Um, and that is we're really seeing a mosaic of responses nationwide in response to that. But certainly, um, hospitals should also consider what we know the federal government is proactively doing, which is using data analytics. And we would encourage hospitals to use prescription drug monitoring programs to see where there's outliers, to see who within their hospital systems are prescribing the most, and to see if there's alternatives to opioids. And, you know, this is a really difficult issue, one that we spent a lot of time with, with providers that, that we advise on a regular basis talking to them about because we can't forget that there are people in pain and that there are people who are actually helped through the use of opioids. And to balance the pain management issue with the overprescribing potentials is really a, a delicate balance. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. I think that's really helpful. Um, one of the things that I think as, as hospital counsel um, folks are concerned about with the opioid epidemic is the ability to share patient information. Can you discuss the ability for hospitals to share patient information when a patient has been admitted for a drug overdose? So as you said, this is an extremely important question and definitely a concern hospitals uh, should think about when um, they're dealing with uh, overdose, patient overdose information and, you know, what to do with that. Um, a lot of the programs that we're hearing coming from both federal and state governments talk about using and sharing data for um, not only identifying and treating patients at a high risk for drug abuse, um, but also, as Melissa mentioned, for enforcement purposes. Um, unfortunately, it gets complicated when you also have to consider the varying federal and even state standards that are protecting patient information and may actually um, infringe on the ability to share information as widely as, um, as we may want. For example, HHS recently published a guidance discussing certain limited circumstances where HIPAA would allow a provider when dealing with a patient um, in an overdose to share that patient's information without his or her consent with their family members or even close friends. Um, now, although the guidance is, seems to be well-intentioned, it unfortunately really only applies to a really small subset of providers. Um, in fact, when we're talking about the opioid crisis, we really have to talk about the applicability of the federal regulation 42 CFR Part 2, um, in addition to talking about the HIPAA requirements. 42 CFR is important because it applies to the broad umbrella of facilities that qualify as a federally assisted drug abuse program. And this includes treatment programs, rehabilitation programs, and even emergency rooms that hold themselves out to their community as providing um, substance use disorder treatments um, or even that refer patients to treatments. And um, the difference or the important part about 42 CFR Part 2 is that it really does not allow for the sharing of patient information without the patient's consent. Um, except for the limited purpose of providing treatment. So that aligns with HIPAA. But hospitals that are subject to this 42 CFR Part 2 requirements are not going to be able to abide by the guidance which says they can share information with a patient's 
friends or family members. They really can only share the information with, uh, with the patient's consent and even then only with other providers. Um, now, an important exception to uh, both HIPAA and 42 CFR Part 2 is this idea of treatment. So for treatment purpose, they can share um, patient information with other providers. Uh, an important exception to 42 CFR Part 2 that also applies in the case of dealing with an opioid overdose, of course, is the exception for medical emergencies. Um, so in a medical emergency, 42 CFR Part 2 does allow for the sharing of patient information. Um, however, the, the medical emergency needs to be properly documented, and so hospitals need to make sure that they're really documenting who is sharing the information with whom it's being shared and the type of medical emergency to make sure they're complying with 42 CFR Part 2. Um, so it's really complicated, um, and it gets further convoluted when hospitals really have to consider changing state law as well, because HIPAA actually requires hospitals to um, adhere to the most stringent requirements for protecting patient information. So even, um, you know, with everything that HIPAA and 42 CFR Part 2 put on hospitals to protect the patient information, hospitals also have to monitor state law to see um, if there's different requirements that might be more stringent and might uh, further constrain the ability to share information. Olivia, that sounds really complicated to figure out. What are some best practices that um, hospitals can create or can use regarding the sharing of information um, for opioid or drug users, abusers, and seekers? Yes, so it's, it is complicated, um, and that's why, you know, we really recommend uh, that hospitals uh, get into the practice of really carefully monitoring state privacy laws. Um, they're frequently changing. Um, they're trying to adjust. You know, as I mentioned, the, a lot of these programs have the goal of, you know, using data in a positive way. Um, so privacy law laws, privacy laws are changing, and um, we really encourage hospitals to carefully monitor those laws. Um, another best practice that hospitals can uh, adopt and that Melissa touched upon is really ensuring proper utilization of EHRs and prescription drug monitoring programs, uh, as well as treating physicians on how to best leverage them. Um, the more prescribers that use this PDMP information, the better the collective care of patients um, will be, and um, it's really an important step in addressing the opioid crisis. As I mentioned, there's a lot going on right now on the Hill as well. Um, for instance, the Opioid Crisis Response Act of 2018 um, currently includes some provisions that will encourage states to share PDMP data with one another, so that further helps the ability of providers to work together to really address the opioid crisis, um, and that's something that hospitals should monitor as well. Well, that sounds very promising. I think that would be really helpful to coordinate efforts. Speaking of coordination, if a city had several hospitals, what are some ways that you can think of that they might be able to work together to address the opioid crisis um, in terms of is there a way to share patient information or best practices? Um, what are some thoughts that you guys might have? So with re regard to sharing patient information, it really turns on the specifics of the situation, um, sort of going back to what Olivia was just talking about. Is it for treatment purposes only? Has a patient consented? Um, so it very much depends 
on the factual scenario, and it's going to be guided by, in large part, state laws, which could impact the ability to share information, in addition to the federal statutes that Olivia was just referring to. Baltimore is doing a very innovative program, which is worth uh, highlighting here, um, where it is encouraging hospitals within the city of Baltimore to work together in addressing the opioid crisis. The City of Baltimore and all of its 11 hospitals have agreed to a new city initiative aimed at increasing their role in fighting the opioid epidemic by focusing primarily on developing potential standards of care that hospitals must follow when treating people with substance abuse problems so that people who are opioid addicts will, will get similar kind of treatment no matter which facility they go to, which may cut down on hospital shopping, things like that. The initiative would also better track what hospitals are doing and look at how they can do more by sharing what has worked with their hospital peers. So it, it, it doesn't get into the weeds in terms of the, some of the privacy issues that we were discussing earlier, but focuses a lot on best practices and sharing of resources and pulling uh, resources with similar patient populations. Additionally, the City of Baltimore has opened a 24-hour stabilization center that serves as a safe space where drug users can go when they're intoxicated to receive medical treatment and links to social services, which is quite in innovative. Yeah, that, that sounds great. Um, uh, it'll be interesting to see how that program works and maybe if it can be scaled out to other cities. But I'm going to ask both of you um, another question that may be difficult to answer. What do you think is the greatest challenge facing hospitals in dealing with the opioid crisis? Um, this is something that Olivia and I spent a while discussing before uh, when we were getting ready to prepare for this podcast. Um, and there's sort of uh, four different areas that we see in terms of the greatest challenge. Um, one is something I alluded to earlier in the podcast, which is effectively treating patients without opioids while still attempting to reduce rates of readmission, maintain patient satisfaction and quality of life, and decrease pain response. Um, so, you know, there are some conditions that are difficult to manage without opioids, and one of the reasons opioids are so addicting is that they are effective for many people in reducing pain. Um, so it, it does put the provider in a difficult position if they know that they can um, improve somebody's quality of life by prescribing opioids to them. Um, but there's all this pressure to, to not prescribe opioids that is sort of gathering steam within the country. Uh, within our country, excuse me. Um, second of all is dealing with the financial impacts of the opioid crisis. Um, hospitals are spending large amounts of resources and money treating patients, coming to, into hospitals with complica complications related to opioid abuse. And, um, in fact, one study in West Virginia found that a West Virginia hospital billed $17.3 million to care for patients requiring care and surgery for opioid-related infections, and that hospital was only reimbursed for $3.8 million. So it puts a real financial strain on the providers. Um, and as is a theme in our podcast today, the next challenge that we see is keeping up with the changing regulatory landscape, um, which imposes varying and different and constantly changing obligations on hospitals and providers. Um, and new state and local regulations. 
And then finally, I would just also add that there's in a changing enforcement regime. Um, we see increased enforcement through both civil and criminal attempts. Um, we see civil suits against providers, against um, individual providers. We see criminal convictions against providers for opioid prescribing. Uh, we see a spate of addiction treatment centers that have settled allegations of unlicensed prescribing or on violations of the False Claims Act. There was recently a, uh, an individual who owned a series of sober homes in, in South Florida, in the Southern District of Florida, who was sentenced to 27 years for Medicare and Medicaid fraud um, in a criminal prosecution of seven individuals connected with those homes. So we really do see a very strong enforcement environment that's specifically targeted on uh, the opioid sector, on treatment of opioids. In fact, my old office, the United States Attorney's Office for the District of New Jersey, recently reorganized under the new U.S. Attorney who took over and um, has a separate opioid enforcement unit that's different from the longstanding narcotics prosecution unit. So we see, we, and we see that happening nationally, is, is designated prosecutors for opioid cases. Very interesting. I did not know that. Um, but I do think it's indicative of this crisis and the multiple legal issues that essentially the greatest legal, the greatest challenge is, is a fourfold challenge. So, um, you know, for, for hospital counsel that aren't prepared, I, I would definitely direct them at least to start with your article and then to follow up on some of these um, references. Um, I wonder if, and, I, and it may be four things, but what is the one thing that you think is most important to remember when advising hospital clients on ways to deal, to get their hands around the opioid crisis? Olivia, I'm going to let you take this one. <laughs> so um, Lisa and I also spoke about this, and really uh, what we want to um, impart on hospital clients is really that Hospitals need to be part of the long-term solution to the opioid crisis. Um, as Melissa mentioned, you know, a lot of heroin addiction stems from prescription pill addiction first. And um, so hospitals really need to think of themselves as part of the solution to the opioid crisis and not just, um, you know, responding to the crisis. Hospitals as part of the healthcare system in general need to look long-term at how they can change the way pain is treated, how, how, how mental health is treated. There's no really, there's no short-term solution to the opioid crisis, and so there really needs to be an institutional change in the way that patients are cared for. And one very important uh, point to start at is within the hospitals. That's good advice. Um, before we close up or, or wrap up today, Olivia and Melissa, is there anything that we didn't talk about or we didn't address that you think is important to remember, uh, especially for hospital clients dealing with the crisis? Um, I would just say that in terms of the, on the enforcement side, some people might not realize that we've seen OIG using its exclusion authority in this space, and we've certainly seen state attempts as well um, to go after providers who are um, convicted of crimes related to the provisions of services um, and in the opioid crisis. 
So th this is an area that I think we're seeing increasing focus on. Um, one of the sort of bellwether areas that those of us in the enforcement arena look at is the healthcare fraud takedown that's done by the Department of Justice traditionally in June or July of each year. And last year for the first time, the Department of Justice included opioid-related cases as part of their overall numbers and their overall takedown. And so we really are seeing an extension of these opioid enforcement efforts being done not only at the criminal level, but certainly through Civil False Claims Act, through civil fraud cases, as well as on the administrative side. Melissa and Olivia, on behalf of the HLA, um, I want to thank you so much both for your article and for your time today. I know as hospital counsel, I learned a lot. Some of it was frankly a little scary, um, but it was very informative. Um, thank you so much for your thoughts and your perspective um, and for volunteering to be on the podcast today.